Well, earth contains no sight as glorious as his people gathered for worship. What a glorious moment then that as we begin 2023, that we do so together as a church family. I appreciated John Bastoni's excitement last week that we we had the privilege of gathering on Christmas Day, on the Lord's Day as a church family. And today we, we gather on New Year's Day, on Sunday, the first day of the year as a church family. A good end to the old year and a good start to the new year. It's good to be together with God's family under God's word as God's household. And I would say to you, Brothers and sisters, isn't it good to be a Christian beloved of God? And God's people said, Amen. As we do at the beginning of each new year, as 2023 begins, we'll have a series of topical messages on the disciplines of the Christian life. Lord willing, we'll get back to 2 Samuel, but not yet. We also remind ourselves at the beginning of the year of disciplines of grace and some biblically-based beliefs and emphases that we've always had here as a congregation. And much of the Christian life is about remembering, about not forgetting. We need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. So the topical series that we will do at the beginning of each year helps to remind us of essential disciplines of the Christian life. And it helps explain the kind of biblically-informed things that we do as a congregation, things which... In the words of a Westminster Confession of Faith, by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, even if not explicitly stated therein. Indeed, there are things within our own congregation, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, or the London Baptist Confession of Faith says, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. Thus, our Disciplines of Grace series reminds us of these things that we must not forget. Additionally, sometimes people use the New Year to look for a, a church. Recently, I spoke with a man several states away uh, who, who, who told me just that. The church that he and his family are in now, they found several years ago as New Year's began as they were looking for a new church. So this series may help people as they think about that kind of important decision. Related As we think about the disciplines of grace in our yearly topical series and some emphases that we've always had here at Emmanuel, it may also help you think if you should continue to remain here at Emmanuel in 2023, particularly if you're thinking EBC is not as biblical as you'd like, or maybe you're frustrated by what is or is not happening. Maybe some of our emphases here and the words of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which are ordered by the light of nature and true Christian prudence, you don't understand fully you find yourself disagreeing with more and more, or you've grown tired of. Well, whatever the case, whatever situation that you're in as the new year starts, I pray that our topical series will help you love Christ more and help you think to the local church that you should love God more with, whether that means joining here or somewhere else. In a word, I hope that this annual topical series does one thing this new year. I hope it helps. I hope it helps you love God more. I hope it helps you love your church better, a full of believers, a church full of believers, just as perfect and as lovable as you are. (laughs) Now, listen, we are blessed with good gospel preaching churches in the upstate. 
We were planted 18 years ago by one of them. I prayed for Heritage Bible Church this morning. We pray for many churches in our area, and some of them we could commend that you would join. As one one person explained, I'm quite certain that our church is not the best place for everyone. Some may find it too small, some too big. I've not heard that a lot, but maybe you find it too big. Some may find our leadership too autocratic or passive or that they only pick their friends. Some find your spiritual environment too exhausting. Some find it bland, too organized or too organic. Some may may, may find other things. One of my roles as a pastor is to shepherd every guest and every member to the greenest pastures, even if it means shepherding someone to another faithful church or to be more faithful here to this congregation. So as a pastor, I hope this series helps. I pray it helps you love God more and love a local church full of believers as lovable and as servant-minded as you are even better. Well, what a blessing to be together as the year begins. I do mean this. Earth contains no sight as glorious as God's people gather for worship. We are the visible display of God's glory to each other and to the world. I don't know about you, but my heart was helped this morning hearing you pray and then hearing you sing. I think two illustrations come to mind. There is a coal. A coal separated from the fire quickly loses its glow and it dies out. You know how the coal gets its fire back again? by being put back together with other pieces of coal. That's what corporate prayer, that's what corporate worship did for me this morning. Or I thought this, I don't get to eat a lot of gravy these days, but I think in some way Christians are like gravy. Gravy is to be kept warm and you've got to stir it up. If you don't keep it warm and it's not stirred up, an unusual film goes on the top of that gravy. And then it becomes a brick and you can't use it. Now, you know what our gatherings do each Lord's Day? They stir each other, they stir our hearts up. They keep film from going over the top so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I want to tell you, church family, you did that for me this morning. Thank you. Well, if, if, if earth contains no sight as glorious as God's people gathered for worship, then my question this morning is who stands at the center of our worship in 2023? And the answer, of course, is what every Sunday school answer is. Jesus. Jesus stands at the center of everything. And if you don't love Jesus and if you don't know Jesus, you aren't as spiritual as you think you are. If you don't love Jesus, if you don't treasure him supremely, then you're not a Christian. The love of Christ is the gravitational force that not only saves us, but it actually keeps us. And our first message on the first day of the new year, I want it to be all about Jesus. Now, of course, I hope that every message at Emmanuel takes us to Christ in some way. But in this first message of this first day of this new year, I want to remind us of what a converted rabbi named Paul declared of first importance. How Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, according to the scripture. I want to talk to us this morning about our love for the unseen Christ. Loving the unseen Christ. I draw that phrase from 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have a Christian Bible, you can turn to that. 1 Peter 1. Peter was a follower of Jesus, and now he's writing a letter. Peter followed Jesus long enough to deny him, and then he lived long enough to be restored by him. 
And that Peter, who saw Jesus, wrote to a group of believers who never had seen Jesus. Peter was there when when he said to Thomas, Thomas, you have believed because you've seen me, but blessed are those who come to believe in me who have not seen me. And now Peter's writing a letter to people scattered over all kinds of cities. And Peter's writing a letter to encourage believers for their love for Christ. And he possibly remembers that blessing that his Lord gave because Peter's saying, I'm encouraging you because you're loving Christ whom you have never seen. Peter wants to encourage the kind of believers whom Christ blessed. People who love Jesus but have not seen him. So this morning I want to talk to us in kind of a textual, topical way about our love for the unseen Christ. Christ himself blesses you. He praises you. Why? Because of your love for him even though you've never seen him. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you are believing in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is the word of the Lord. My title this morning not only comes from 1 Peter 1, 8, 9, but also from a Puritan pastor named Thomas Vincent. I think it was 1677 that Thomas Vincent wrote a little book based on this text in 1 Peter 1, 8, 9. And his title for that booklet is this, The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ. If you're looking for a book this year to take in slowly like a good cup of coffee or to chew slowly like a good cut of steak, then I commend to you Thomas Vincent's little book, The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ. So let's think this new year of Christ, whom you love, though you have not seen him. I hope that will be the theme of your life and your song this year. What theme? That in the morning when you rise, that in the morning when you rise, you will say, give me Jesus. Or in 2023, if you come to die, if you come to die, if you come to die, you will say, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You may have all this world, but give me Jesus. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Fills my heart and soul and every longing And keeps me singing as I go. Jesus. Give me Jesus. So. Peter is writing to a group of distressed believers. Distressed by diverse trials. You're in 1 Peter 1. We just read the text. What I hope to do in the next few moments. Is to gather up a few meditations about Christ. Like gathering individual flowers. And then putting them into a beautiful bouquet. In a vase. Or. This has been on my mind a lot. I hope this morning to fill the charcuterie board of your mind with some choice meditations of Christ whom you love, though you have not seen. Well, before we feed on the charcuterie board of Christ, let's set the tablecloth. Let's get out the vase before we put in the flowers. So what's the general setting of this letter? What's the context of this encouragement that he gives to these believers? Well, look at 
1 Peter 1, if you have your Bible, and verse 6. Here's the context. In this hope of Christ raised from the dead, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If you have been or you will be grieved by various trials, then you know why Peter is saying this, writing this letter. The Christian faith is not blind to suffering and trials, but a true follower of Christ, Peter is trying to tell them, is never defined by his suffering or defined by her trauma. The only trauma that identifies a true Christian is the cosmic trauma that Christ endured on the cross Should we, so we can be forgiven of our trauma that caused Christ His death and of our cosmic treason against the Father. The just one suffered in the place of unjust ones, Peter writes, so that Christ can bring us to God, 1 Peter 3, 18. Our wounds don't define us in our trials, but Christ's wounds do. By his wounds we are healed. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and we have been born again to a living hope. So Peter writes to believers distressed by diverse trials. He's not blind to their suffering, but he reminds them of something and someone greater than their suffering. And verses 6 and 7 Peter speaks to them of what Wayne Grudem calls the horizontal problem of trials in their lives, the problems of of life in a society that doesn't love God. But when we come to verse 8, Peter moves from addressing this horizontal level of our trials to address the vertical problem of our trials. Well, what in the world is the vertical trial that believers like you and me can face? Here it is, the absence of Christ. Not seeing Jesus is a kind of trial. In other words, Peter's acknowledging that there is a kind of trial that many Christians face. And what is that trial? Well, Peter and Thomas saw Jesus and they believed. Christ physically showed up to them in their trial. But now these believers, similar to you and me, are grieved by various trials. And one of these trials is this. I just wish that I could see Christ like you did, Peter. If only I could have seen Jesus and seen and touched his side and his hands. We wish that Christ would with us physically like he's with you. Then we would know that we're not believing in something fake. The context of 1 Peter, his own words admit that not seeing Jesus is a kind of trial for the believer. Like Job, sometimes a believer calls out in his or her suffering, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might stand in his presence, Job 23.3. The absence of Christ is at times a trial for a believer. But Peter's encouragement is to keep their love and their trust in Christ. That even though, he says, you have not seen Christ, you love him. Here again are the words of Job. Here's here's what Peter is commending them for. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is love for the unseen God. Or the words of Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were about to be thrown into the fire, they said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning furnace. But if he does not be it known to you, we will not bow at the cultural marketplace of your idol. That was love for the unseen Christ. So this context of 1 Peter tells us a remarkable fact about true believers of all ages. 
that true believers are those who have love for Christ even though they've never seen Him yet. That not seeing Jesus is no hindrance to your love for Jesus. True Christians love Jesus no matter what the cost. And the cost of loving Christ, this kind of trial, shows your true love for Jesus. Thomas Vincent called his book, The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ. If you don't love Jesus, you're not spiritual, not how much you think you are. Thomas Vincent puts it like this as he opens his little meditation. Without love to Christ, we may have the name of Christians but we are holy without the nature of Christians. We may have a form of godliness, but are holy without the power of godliness. If you don't have love for Jesus, you have the name of Christian, but you don't have the nature of a Christian. True Christian love loves Christ, even the unseen Christ. Love is the going forth of the heart under the object that's beloved, even when the object is gone for a time, And I put it like this, said in this context, the opening verses, Peter says that trials of all kind that you face do something to you. They do something in you. Peter, what what are what are you telling me these trials are doing in me? Well, look at verse seven. The trials prove the genuineness of your faith. They 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 reveal the proven character of your faith. Trials reveal true faith. They authenticate your faith. In other words, you believe and your love for the unseen Christ shows you that you really are a believer. Your faith is true. It's not in vain. Why? Because though you have not seen him, you love him. Not seeing him is in a trial. But you reveal that his love has really taken hold of you because you love him. So love for the unseen Christ reveals the valid nature of our faith. If you love him, but you have not seen him, Jesus says, blessed are you. True believers are those who love him no matter what, even if they haven't seen him. And the way out of this dilemma towards, here's this gap between I haven't seen Jesus and I'm struggling with this trial. The the, the way out of the dilemma is to use the very thing being tested in the trial, which is your faith in Christ. That's the rest of verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you are loving him. Though you do not now see him, you are believing in him. You are believing in him. One commentator explains that that word translated believe has the idea of trust or rest one's confidence in or depend upon. And look, look, eyes on on the text. It says believe in So the believing in is this intimate, personal, into Jesus. It's not believing in, but believing into Jesus. So here's the strong, personal involvement in the act of believing that causes somebody to rest oneself in Christ and sing in joy and in sorrow, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of who you are. I'm finding out the kindness of your loving heart. I will rest. I will depend. When our love and trust rest in Christ, even in trials, what happens? 
Well, Peter tells you what will happen, that your love will well up into a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. In other words, you can obtain in part the joy of your salvation that you receive in the fullness of heaven. You can experience that now. Maybe think of it this way. There's a joy of Christmas morning that comes as you wait for Christmas morning. There is joy that you have of the wedding before the wedding day comes. My point is simply this. It's possible that the full future joy of Christmas Day or a wedding day can settle into your heart now. And Peter's saying that's what happens to believers in the midst of trials. What is that? That when our love remains in Christ, whom we cannot see, when we continue to actively trust and depend and treasure Christ, then the joy of heaven can be in us before we are in heaven. That's what was said of Richard Sibbs, the Puritan who wrote the book, uh, The Bruised Reed. It was said of Sibbs that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And Peter is saying it's possible for believers to experience joy inexpressible and heavenly glory now. How? By our ongoing love for the unseen Christ, by our active abiding trust in him. And the more we trust in him, the more we know his love, our hearts can be full of joy and glory, inexpressible. And we can even begin to receive, to obtain the salvation of our souls. Now, haven't you seen that at least in times in your lives that you've experienced a kind of joy and a, and a peace and you've experienced God's love for you? Haven't you known those times? Don't you wish you did more? We sing songs like we have and we want to. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. So let the context of this letter and of this, these two verses encourage you first to know, beloved, your faith is not in vain. And then let it encourage you to grow in your love for Christ, to grow in your faith. Because your love for the unseen Christ proves the genuineness of your faith. May I put it this way? You can have all your other New Year's goals. But give me Jesus. You can have this old world, but give me Jesus, whom having not seen, you love. And you can trust. I will treasure. I will trust you, Jesus. And how could I not? I love you first because you first love me. I love the unseen Christ. Indeed, I can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused me to be born again through a living hope for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In this you rejoice and your love grows. Yes, I love him who I have not seen. I will make him my treasure because he first made a wretch like me his treasure. There's the tablecloth. There's the vase. Now, with that in mind, I want to give you five statements for your meditation. Five flowers, five pieces of meat or cheese or nuts to put on the charcuterie board of your mind. Because here's why. If if love for Christ shows that our faith is authentic, we need to make sure that we have true love for the true Christ. So who is the him we are believing in him? How do I know if my love for the unseen Christ is true? 
So let me give you five ways to know that you are loving the unseen Christ. Truly. I'll only be suggestive. Here's number one. Love for the unseen Christ means that we actually love Christ and Christ alone. It's not simply tautology. Let me try to explain it. Let me give you come at it in a a different way. If you are tempted not to believe in Jesus because he has not answered a prayer and the way that you asked it, you might not have true love for the true Christ. You might be loving the gifts more than you love the giver. What I mean is this. I want you to think about the reason for our love and the nature of our love. Think about the reason for our love. Think about this. Do you love Jesus for the stuff he does for you or because of who he is? And you'll know that by how you respond when he doesn't answer your prayer. That's one way. Are you using Jesus? Are you treasuring Jesus? Someone put it like this. In college, I used to listen to Mozart so I could get a degree and make lots of money. I used Mozart to make money one day. But now I spend an awful lot of money now that I'm grown to listen to Mozart. Why? Because it's beautiful. It's its own reward. Here's the point. You don't love Jesus because he's useful, but because he's beautiful. And loving Christ is his own reward because of who he is. Do you treasure Christ? Is he your reward? Or think of this. In some respects, love for your children is deeper and different than your love for your spouse. How? There are things that your spouse can do or not do that would threaten your love for them. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying in the most popular common conceptions of marital love, unfortunately, marital love is consumeristic and transactional. It's like a business relationship. I will love them as long as I get something out of it. That's how we view marital love. But with your children, you love them in spite of getting little from them, even when they take just about everything from you. Even you love them, even when they're little, they take your money and your mental health and your sleep. Why? You love them for who they are, not for what they do. And this is the reason that true Christians love the true Christ. That true faith loves Jesus, not because he's useful, but because of who he is, but because he's beautiful. True faith treasures Jesus, not for his treasure, but because Jesus is the treasure. Have you seen Jesus that way? There's the reason for our love. Now, what about the nature of our love? To love Christ is this. I'm using the word to love Christ is to treasure him like nothing else and above all else. It's not to be infatuated with Jesus. It's not like some kind of modern romance that you love Jesus because he's into you as much as you're into yourself. To love Jesus is to treasure him, to cherish him, to honor him like nothing else and above everything else. It's to treasure him as the way, as the truth and the life. To say there's, there's, there's no salvation outside of him in heaven or on earth. There's no other name among men whereby we must be saved. It's to treasure Jesus. That he alone is our sole hope in life and death. So I'm saying that love for the unseen Christ means that we treasure Jesus, not for his treasure, but because Jesus is the treasure. That's the reason and nature of our love. Before point number two, let me give you a quote from Thomas Vincent. And it, and it, and it, and it goes like it goes a long time. So uh, let me let me try to read it. Love for Christ means that we love Christ alone. 
He says, love is the going forth of the heart unto the object beloved. And the love which true Christians bear unto Jesus is a grace wrought in our hearts by the Spirit. Whereby, upon discovery and believing apprehensions of Christ's infinite loveliness and excellency, of His matchless love and grace and mercy, hearts go out towards Him. An earnest desire for union with Him and communion with Him, wherein they take, here's the key word, chief delight. Upon discovery and apprehensions of Christ's infinite loveliness, His excellency, His matchless love and grace and mercy, their hearts go to Him and take chief delight in Him. Love for the unseen Christ means we actually treasure Christ alone. Second, love for the unseen Christ is a love for His person. There is nobody like Jesus. And the heart of every true believer, when you hear that kind of statement, resonates and hums like a violin string when that truth goes over it. There's nobody like Jesus. Jesus in his person, he's better than Moses and Abraham. He's more pure than Joseph. He's better than all of his gifts. He's wiser than Solomon. He's fiercer than Joshua or Joab in battle. And he's a better king than David. He's more devoted in his hesed love than Ruth and more courageous than Esther when he stood before Pilate for such a time as that was. He outshines the sun. He's fairer than the moonlight and all the twinkling starry host. Doesn't Jesus shine brighter? Doesn't Jesus shine purer than all the angels heaven can boast? He's the preeminent one, Colossians 1. He's God's final word, the full expression of his glory, Hebrews 1. So complete is Jesus in his person that he had the audacity to say that if you have seen me, you've actually seen God. There is no loving God apart from treasuring the Son. And the way that you love God is to treasure the Son. Love for the unseen Christ is to treasure his unique person. Here are various titles that Jesus is called that give us a window into his person. He's called Jesus. Why? Jesus is the Old Testament name for Joshua. And what does it mean? It means Savior. It means Jehovah saves. And if Jesus saves and Jehovah saves, who is Jesus? Do you believe that? Jesus is the divine Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. In biblical culture, as in many today, the Son had more to do with your function and representation than your biology. So James and John were called the sons of thunder, not because they were biological procreational results of thunder copulating with another part of nature, but because James and John acted and functioned like thunder in their personality. They were sons of thunder because they acted like the thunder sometimes. Well, Adam was to be a son of God to represent him and act like God, but he failed. Israel was a son of God, but they fared no better as a nation than Adam did as an individual. Then kings were to function as God's vice regents, his representatives. The greatest king was David. He functioned as a son of God. But the greatest king of Israel gives us the greatest failures of God's son in the Old Testament. As a son of God, he's a failure. So where is the one who's going to be the son who represents and reflects God's rule in his reign? 
Well, here comes Jesus Christ of Nazareth coming up out of the waters of his baptism and the heavens open and the dove anoints and the Holy Spirit to anoint him. And God said something. Finally, he said of no other son, not of Adam, not of Israel, not of David ever. What did he say? Here is my what kind of son? Beloved son in whom I am pleased. No, in whom I am well pleased. To love Jesus is to love him as the perfect representation of the father. To love him as the savior, the divine savior, the son of God, that he's the regal and real representation of the father, that all the father did, Jesus did. And to believe in Jesus as the son of God is to have life through his name. To love him as the savior, the son of God. It's also to love him as the son of man in his person. Now, you and I tend to think that when you hear the phrase son of man, it refers to Jesus's humanity. That he was fully God and fully man. Now, this reality is certainly true and taught by the Bible that because Jesus is fully God, he can eternally pay for your sin. And because he's fully man, he can be your representative and take the penalty for our sin. There is no one like him in his person. He's very God of very God, light of light and fully man. He's the eternal word made flesh. That's true. And Christians love that unique person of the Lord Jesus. But the phrase son of man underlies not Christ's humanity primarily, but Jesus' sovereign authority and authority equal with God's own authority. So in the Gospels, Jesus heals a man and he does so that we might know that the son of man has what? The son of man has authority, not son of man has humanity, but son of man has authority to forgive sins. And they say, who can forgive sins but God? And he said, yes, I'm the son of man with authority to do that. He's the son of man with authority. And the book of Daniel, Daniel sees an exalted vision among the kingdoms of the earth in Daniel 7. And he sees the son of man who has dominion over people and nations. To love Jesus is to love him as the authoritative son of man who comes in his full-throated authority that he used to muzzle the ocean to expel demons and greatest of all as the son of man he used his authority to forgive sins and now all authority is given to him in heaven and in earth. He's the son of man. To love him as the son of man is to love him as co-equal with God in power and authority. So here's an application. That means son of God, son of man, you cannot love Jesus and Caesar. You cannot love Jesus and money. You cannot love Jesus and Buddha and Gandhi and Joseph Smith or the Pope or your family. Listen to these words of Jesus. If any man, Luke 14, doesn't forsake everything and follow me, if he doesn't hate his health and his family, he cannot be my disciple. Now go learn what that means. Learn what it means to love the unseen Christ with such an exclusive, devoted love that he's more to you than family and health. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. He's the savior. Love for the unseen Christ. And he's also Christ. I know, you know this. Remind yourself if you don't know it. Christ is not the last name of Jesus that somebody uses in a swear. It's a title. It means anointed one. It means Messiah. It means that Jesus is the one God anointed as the son of God, as the son of man. That Jesus is the one God anointed. He Messiah to be our savior. And therefore, Jesus is every way qualified to be a suitable, compassionate and all sufficient savior. He is the Christ, the Lord's Christ. 
Love for the unseen Christ means that we treasure Christ alone. It means that we love Christ for his person. And third, it means we love Christ for his work. Prophets were to represent God to the people. Prophets were be a visible revealing of what God is like. But even the best prophet like Moses sinned and he wasn't allowed in the promised land. Then there's Elijah. Oh, to be like Elijah. But even Elijah had his faults and he failed and he flinched in the face of of things and God had to encourage him. But now at the Mount of Transfiguration, the two great prophets in the Old Testament, there's Moses and there's Elijah and there's Jesus. And God said, hear all three of them. He didn't say that. He thundered from heaven and said, this is my son. Hear him. Sit down, Moses. Sit down, Elijah. This is my son. Jesus is the prophet who reveals God like nobody else. We love him that he's our prophet. He's made God known to us. Prophets reveal God to people. Priests represent people to God. They had to be one of the people, but separate from the people. But here's the problem. Every priest had to offer a sacrifice for sins, first for his own and then for his people. But Jesus offered no sacrifice for his sins. And he offered his own life in the place of his people. Jesus was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He took on flesh that he might represent us to God. So we treasure Jesus, not only as our prophet who reveals God, but as our priest who brings us to God and brings God to us. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus is our prophet, he's our priest, and he's our king. We touched on this as we spoke of his authority as the son of God and son of man. Brian led us in a prayer of confession so helpfully and even mentioned we pay lip service to the baby in a manger and forget that he's the king. At his resurrection, Jesus, who descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power. He ruled as a king over sin at the cross. And now through his ascension and his session at the right hand of God, he rules over sin. And Paul tells us he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. We talk about Jesus living a substitutionary death and we should. Don't you ever, 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 ever be embarrassed by the penal, vicarious, substitutionary atonement of Christ. It is your only hope. It's not cool to reinterpret it. It's not cool to back away from it. The penal substitution of a curious death of Christ is your only hope. If he didn't satisfy God's wrath for you, there is no cosmic victory over the universe. It's the heart of every other place view of the atonement. But listen, we believe in a substitutionary death, but a substitutionary life and his vicarious resurrection too. Because he lived in him, we have perfectly fulfilled the law. Because he died in him, we've died to its sin. Its penalty has been paid and its power has been broken. In him it happened, it really happened. That's you, Romans 6. And because he rose, well then the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies. No guilt in life. No fear in death. Because Jesus commands my destiny. Do you believe? Live like it that no power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. Love for the unseen Christ is to treasure his work as our only prophet, our priest and his king, as our substitutionary, propitiating, risen, reigning, returning prophet, priest and king. True Christians treasure the unseen Christ for his work. 
I have two more pieces to lay out, two more flowers to bring to you to make up the bouquet. Number four, true Christians love the unseen Christ for his words, his person, his work, and his words. Don't be fooled. You can't love Jesus without loving his word. Peter prayed in a prayer service this morning, sanctify them in your truth and your word is truth. If you don't treasure his word, none of us, we don't have genuine love for Jesus. If anyone loves me, we read together. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If you love me, keep my commandments. Elsewhere, Jesus turns up the pressure like this. He says in Luke 9, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him before my father who is in heaven. Love for the unseen Christ means that we treasure his word, every part of it. And if you're really reading the word, there are parts of God's word that will always be contradicting parts of your personality and your culture. Are you not reading the real word? The parts of our personalities that we like and don't like. The parts that our culture appreciates. The parts that our culture calls us bigots for believing. Love for Jesus is loving his word. Sweetly and humbly, but truly. His word, I'll just go through Ephesians. His word about gender is male and female, about greed and gluttony. His word about husbands as loving heads of the home and, and wives intelligently submitting to their husbands. His word about parents with the primary discipling responsibility in their kids' lives, of fathers not provoking their kids to wrath, of children obeying their parents. His, his word, Hebrews, of not forsaking gathering for worship and not adding a word to his word. Love for the unseen Christ is to love the word of Christ. Every word of Christ, no matter how important you think it is, you should want to believe every word that's in the Bible. Love for Christ is not to be embarrassed, but to humbly submit to it. So if you if you ever think to yourself, or you ever hear somebody saying, I'm rolling down the windows of my life and I'm throwing out everything but Jesus, they're not acting like John Knox or Martin Luther reforming the church in line with God's word. They're about to throw Jesus out with his word. To love the unseen Christ is to love his word. You know, and you know what happens when you love his word? Here's the Hebrew. Oh, the happinesses of the man who meditates on his word day and night. Blessed is the man. No, 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 no. Oh, the happinesses of the man who meditates on his day and night because he will be like a tree with roots dug down deep and wide, planted by the rivers whose life will be a blessing, always giving fruit and his leaf shall not wither. Your life, like the tree of life in the garden and the tree of life in Revelation, your life will be a life-giving tree if you meditate on God's word day and Do you love his word? Do you love the unseen Christ? How could we ever be embarrassed by the word that gave you life? His word gave you life. And not only was the shock pedal that woke up your dead heart, but now it's the oxygen pumping into your soul. It gives you life. It gives you life. Finally, love for Christ is a love for his people. Aren't you glad that God didn't call you to follow him by yourself? I'm an introvert. I like being alone, but it's not good for me to be alone. And God didn't make you to be alone. A coal apart from the fire will die fast. 
gravy apart from somebody stirring you up becomes congealed and no good. I mean, a dishwasher won't even clean that thing out sometimes. The garbage just goes, aren't you good? Aren't you glad that God gives you his people to help you love him more? You can't love Jesus without loving his word. You can't love Jesus without loving his people. You know, about 10 years ago or so, I don't know, it was common to say, I love Jesus, but not the church. And it kind of caught traction for a while until people started analyzing it biblically. So many people saw the falsity of that kind of statement and then they stopped saying it. But now it's popular because people have learned their lesson. They won't say that, but they'll say something like this. You know, the church has disappointed me. It's such a part of the problem that I'm now going to follow Jesus apart from the church and my life has never been better. You know, there's an old sitcom. I, don't come at me with I shouldn't use this illustration. I mean, listen, the Cosby show, I love the Cosby show. And there, there was a scene in the Cosby show when Theo, you remember his son and, and, and Theo's getting bad grades and, and Dr. Huxville is saying, you're getting bad grades. And, and Theo goes, you know what? You're a doctor and mom's a lawyer and maybe I don't have a brain like you, so you should just be happy with how I am. And the, and the sitcom people clap and, and, and a modern sitcom, that would be the end of it and dad would be dumb, right? But Dr. Huxtable looks at him and says, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. No wonder you get D's in everything. To say that you can love Jesus apart from the church, no wonder you get D's in everything. Of course, of course, of course, of course, churches and people, pastors like me, congregants like you can hurt people deeply. Read the seven churches to Revelation and Revelation. Read the letters to Corinth and Galatia. No one grieves more over the failure of local churches than Jesus. He calls churches to repent and even calls them to lovingly use church discipline for serious unrepentant sin of doctrine or divisiveness or of lifestyle. And yet, knowing more about the sins of his churches than any discernment tweeter out there, Jesus still loves the church, the global church. And when he criticizes the church, when he criticizes his people going into Jerusalem, he does so weeping. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Jesus loves the church. Paul even said to those tearing down Corinth, writing their social media posts saying, I survived Corinth. He used this phrase. Corinth is, are you ready for this? Corinth is the church of God. And whoever takes down God's temple at Corinth, God himself will take that person down. What is the point? To love the unseen Christ is to love his people. It's to love local churches. I had some of these things written down and, and Brother Nate prayed many of these things in his prayer. Of, I don't know, it's confession or thanksgiving, but what it means is we should be slow to take offense, yet mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure reconciliation without delay. We should work to guard the spirit-given unity, which may mean, which may mean, I mean, everything's more complicated with social media, but it may mean that you'll guard the social, you, you'll guard the spirit given you to by thinking, should I really post this? Should I really reply to this? Because you're not your own. You are bought with a price. And it even means that your fingers and extension of your body don't belong to you. Therefore, glorify God with your body and your fingers. It means we endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to rejoice with those who rejoice and, and weep with those who weep. It means that we rejoice with those who rejoice and not miss church because we might be sad. But it also means we weep and remember that those who might be here who are sad. 
Because we are one body, we suffer together and we rejoice together because we've all been put together in Christ. We're the people of God. We're chosen. We're holy. We're elect. We're beloved. We're a royal priesthood. We're destined for the light. And we should love and live like it because we are a congregation of baptized believers who've been raised to walk in the newness of life. Beloved, don't you know how much Jesus loves you? Don't you know all he did that you might be his child? Now think of this. Don't you know how much he did so that we might be his family? How can I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? It didn't simply cost Jesus to save you. It cost Jesus to save us. His banner over us is love. And with shield of faith and belt of truth, belt of truth. His word is truth. We stand against the devil's lies. So I want to say to us, let us be a people this year who treasure Jesus whom we have not seen. He is our Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is our perfect prophet, our sympathetic priest, our reigning king. And he loves you so much and our church so much that he gave us his word to guide our roving feet. And he gave us people to remind us of how much he loves us and our need for his love. So love for the unseen Christ is to love him in his person, in his work, in his word, in his people. It's to treasure him. And when you live this way, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Wayne Grudem explains it this way. We can have the joy of heaven before heaven experienced now in fellowship with the unseen Christ. Let's love the unseen Christ because we've been born again to a living hope.